So, uh, Brother Sam, I want you to know that that is my absolute favorite hymn. My wife will attest to that. I'm not just preacher talking right now. Uh, I'm actually telling you the truth. <laughs> just kidding. Kind of. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was, that was awesome. Praise the Lord, Brother Sam. Uh, Y'all have a good day? Y'all, are you worn out? Are y'all going to get a nap right now? <laughs> I, I hope not. You know, a lot of folks, I was sitting in the back, a lot of folks came in late, uh, if, and, and we're glad you're here. Uh, but if you did not get notes for tonight, why don't you just lift your hand real quick, and some of our good-looking ushers will get those to you. And since they're not here, these guys will get those to you. All right. You guys remember what we talked about last night? All right, what we, what we actually tried to, to get into was a, a little bit of a, a paradigm shift about how we view the Christian life. And, and, and really, uh, one of the key points that I was trying to communicate last night is how we view the Christian life determines what we actually do in the Christian life. Because if, if I think my responsibility to respond to what Jesus did in dying for me, if I think my responsibility is now to live for him, then by golly, man, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and come hell or high water, buddy. I'm going to make sure that I never, ever, ever, ever give up. And the key words in my spiritual vocabulary are going to be things like strive, persist, work, discipline, labor. You hear those words, y'all? I, I think that's a, a lot of times the way that we think this thing actually works. But you see, if I understand that my responsibility to respond to what Jesus did in dying for me is to get out of his way so that he can live through me, then my, my entire approach to the Christian life is going to be different. And my spiritual vocabulary is also going to be different. I'm going to be using words like yield, present, abide, let. Check this one out. Rest. Do you know in Hebrews chapter 4, would you listen to this paradox? What he says is that we are to labor to enter into his rest. You know what that tells me? That the greatest work of the Christian life is not working. 
You, you didn't hear that, did you? <laughs> the, the greatest effort <laughs> that we need to exert in the Christian life is to get to the place to where we're not working. But he's working through us. And, and so l- last night we just started talking, do you remember, about our natural inclinations. We, we, we learn all these truths in the Bible, and, and as a result of learning those truths, our, our natural inclinations kick in, and we start off headlong into this Christian life thing, as opposed to actually looking in the Word of God at what God's biblical intention actually is for us. And the first contrast that we looked at last night, you can see it in your notes. The, Jesus died for us, and our natural inclination says, so now he wants us to live for him. And we saw that God's biblical intention is that, yes, for sure, Jesus died for us, but now he wants to live through us. And do you remember this? The difference between me living for Jesus and Jesus living through me is about 20 to 40 years. All right, now let's get into some other ones tonight that, again, I I, I don't want to belabor any point. But but, uh, with this whole paradigm shift, I think there's a few other things that we might need to talk about when we are contrasting our natural inclinations with what God's biblical intentions actually are. So number two, our natural inclination says, though the Christian life is riddled with trials and difficulties, anybody know about that? (laughs) It is incumbent upon us to continue trying to live according to God's holy calling on our lives. And typically, I'm not doing it now, typically, we'd make a statement like that, and we'd say, amen, and everybody would say, amen. But, and again, the problem with a statement like that is that it makes just good logical sense. Because, I mean, all of our lives as Americans, we've had built into us, if at first you don't succeed... Yes, and we all know that. Man, we just, we just keep trying. We just keep coming to the well. And I mean, for real, how in the world could you ever fault a statement like that, especially when it comes to being a Christian? Because come on, man, after all that Christ has done for us, man, that should be all the motivation that we need for the rest of our life to just keep trying and trying and trying. But the fact is, y'all, we can't get where God wants us to get by trying. There's only one way that we will ever get there, and that's by following God's biblical intention I put it in your notes this way. The life God has called us to live, y'all. You can put right y'all in right there. That's a good place for it. The life God has called us to live is not only difficult. 
It is impossible. The key is not found in persistent trying, but insistent, what y'all? Dying. And the crazy thing is, y'all, God keeps working in our lives, orchestrating the circumstances of our lives in such a way to cause his life to be lived through us. But our problem is not only do we not recognize it, but we actually resist it. And we actually pray against what God's trying to do in our lives. And I want to show you what I'm talking about. I, I, I put this in, in your notes. A very familiar passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 8 and 9. You know these verses. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. And I want you to look at the verse again. And I want you to look at the extenuating circumstances that Paul talks about in the first part of each of those four phrases. He talks about how those times in our lives when we are troubled, he says, on every side. Listen, y'all, there's sometimes in life it feels like the four walls are closing in on us. Trouble, he says, on every side. He says those times in our lives when we are just perplexed, we don't know what to do. He talks about being persecuted. And some of you are persecuted at work and others of you at school. Some of you are persecuted at home. He goes on and talks about those times when we feel like we have been cast down. Just absolutely chewed up, man, and spit out. You ever been there? And what do we typically do during those times? Man, we, we pray, don't we? But you know how we typically pray in those times? Oh, God, get me out of all of this stuff. Get this junk out of my life, Lord. And, and I get it. I, yeah, I do the same thing. I, I, I pray during those times. But listen, do you know what this passage is telling us? that all of that junk is? All of the trouble and the perplexing situations and the persecution and the being cast down? You know how he defines it in this passage? It's in verse 10. Usually we only look at verses 8 and 9 in this passage. And there's plenty to rejoice over there. But all of that stuff, all the junk... He defines as the dying of the Lord Jesus. Do you know what is happening during those times, y'all? 
We have entered in to the fellowship of his suffering. We're being made conformable unto his death. The way verse 10 says it is, listen to this, always bearing about. God is always working in our lives to this end. Always bearing about in the body, this earth suit. The dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because God's a masochist. That, look at the verse, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Do you understand what he's saying here? I put it in your notes this way. Jesus died to give us life. Amen? Now, he wants us to die to give him life. And that's the reason, he says, that's the reason for all the trouble. That's the reason for all the perplexing situations. It's the reason for the persecution and for those times where we were cast down. And that's why he says, go back to the verses 8 and 9, that's why he says that we can go through all of that stuff and not be distressed, not be in despair, not feel like we've been forsaken, not be destroyed. Why? It's because we understand that all of those things are happening to bring us into a whole different type of fellowship than we have ever known. The fellowship of his suffering. And all of these things are happening. to bring us to our death because it is only then that the life of Jesus in us can be manifested through us. And that, my friend, is the key to the Christian life. It is not by Trying. It's by dying. Would you watch how he qualifies that in verse 11? For we which live, okay, we're living in these physical human bodies, are, what's the next word? Hello? Are you guys trying to find this on your sheet? <laughs> are always. You remember verse 10? Always bearing about in the body. 
God's just constantly working in our life to bring us to death so we can get out of the way so his life can be made manifest. He's saying the same thing. We're always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. Anybody here glad that Jesus died for your sake? Okay, and now he says, hey, I want you to return the favor. I want you to die for my sake. Listen, so that my life, the life of Jesus, mind you, might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. And, and again, he says, our, our, our dying Jesus' death in our bodies is what allows our flesh to be removed so Jesus can live his life and it can be manifested through us. And that's why he says in verse 16, it's on, in your notes, for which cause we faint not. You understand, when, when we really grab a hold of this truth and this principle, that right now in this life, what God wants for all of us is to die. And he's bringing about these circumstances, but he says, listen, even in the midst of those circumstances, we faint not. But though our outward man perish, there's that death. Yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, what do you think he's talking about, y'all? The trouble, the perplexing situations, the persecution, and the being cast down. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, what does it do? It worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, it's just temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. I, I, I'm not going to have time to hang on the rim and stick my tongue out on this point. So, you, but, but would you please listen? At the judgment seat of Christ, whose life was being manifest through our body down here in this life is gonna matter. <laughs> That's that eternal reward thing that we're talking about at the judgment seat of Christ for people who get rid of that temporal focus. Understand, what we go through in this life is just for a moment and it's working for us a far more exceeding weight of glory and listen right now our lord is working through the circumstances of our life 
to bring us to his death so that his life can be made manifest through us and become a part of our eternal reward. But make no mistake about it. His life being made manifest and the obtaining of that eternal reward is not by trying, but dying. And by now, you probably do know the answer to this. Do you know what the difference is between our trying to live the Christian life and our dying so that it's simply Christ's life being made manifest through us? It's probably somewhere about 20 to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Spending a bunch of time on wood, hay, and stubble because of a temporal focus that we have in going through life. Number three, our, our natural inclination next says, because the Lord Jesus Christ fully sacrificed his life for us, the real goal of the Christian life is to become fully devoted, totally committed followers or disciples of Jesus Christ and once again if we were in a different setting this would be a good place for a good hearty amen in fact that statement that I put right there on number three our natural inclination it's very close to the mission statement of a good portion of trendy churches all over this country I mean, that's the stated goal, to make totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking right now, what in the world could be wrong with that? I, I'm, I'm not smart enough to have figured it out, uh, but uh, almost 20 years ago, I was... Uh, a very young pastor. Uh, I was pastoring in New Philadelphia. I had, uh, was 32 at the time. I had been pastoring for about a year and man, trying to figure it out. Kansas City Baptist Temple had not yet come into my view and influenced me. Uh, I was doing the best that a brother knew how to do, uh, doing everything that I was taught to do and not taught to do and uh, and so I got this you know it was a different day back then I, I got this advertisement that came across my desk for this VHS series uh, you young people don't even know what a VHS is uh, it, it was the forerunner of the DVD uh, and okay and a DVD is <laughs> I think we're beyond that now Okay, but, but anyway, it came across my desk, and it was this thing that was called Revival Forum 1989. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I started reading it, and, you know, there were people that were speaking, like Manly Beasley, I think some of you know him, Leonard Ravenhill. And then they, they talked about this guy, Joseph Son, T-S-O-N, okay? 
And uh, so, you know, young dude wanting God to work in my life, you know. So I, you know, put it, you know, I ordered it, came in. So this, this Joseph son guy began to talk. And he talked about the fact that he was a Romanian pastor uh, and, you know, before the, the wall fell and uh, he, he talked about the persecution that he had been through and the fact that he had been imprisoned and they were about to kill him and all of this stuff. And finally, what they did rather than kill him is they exiled him to the United States. And, and so he came to our country and is going to try to help the brothers and sisters back in his country. And so, you know, he, he said, I was trying to find uh, Christian literature, Christian books that I could translate and send back to my country. And he started intriguing me when he, when he started saying that, but I, I must be very careful with what I translate because I don't want your American brand of Christianity to get into my country. He, he says, we're, we're, you invite people to come. Do, are you here and you want to find peace? Are you here and you want to find joy? Then come to Jesus. And he says, you're Jesus. Sounds like a Santa Claus that is passing out goodies. He says, in my country, he says, I would give invitations and I would say, you are a sinner before a holy God. And your only hope of not being separated from him forever in a burning hell is calling upon the name of Jesus. He says, but... I must say to them, before you respond today, you must know that KGB agents are in this room today and your goods may be confiscated and you may end up imprisoned if you respond today. So that's the invitation that we give. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I might need to change the way I give my invitations, you know. And so he goes on to explain that he was, uh, that he's a linguist. And, and of course, that's why he was doing this translation type thing. And he, uh, he, he started giving several examples of, of things that he was noticing in our Christian literature that he didn't want to get back to his country. And one of the things that he said just absolutely stopped me in my tracks he, he says I, i've noticed in in the christian literature in your country that you, you are constantly using this word commitment and, and you talk to people about making a commitment to christ and you talk about being committed to christ and he said, now the, the reason that this was such a glaring thing to me is he said, in my language, we don't have a word for the word commitment. So he said, I had to back off and, and begin to ponder, how do I communicate this, this truth? And, and he says, as a linguist, what I have learned is that when a word is overused in a culture, it typically is a word that has replaced 
another word. <laughs> and he says, do you know what the word commitment replaced? Surrender. And he said, I, I pondered that and I thought to myself, why would they change that word in this culture? And he says, I, I, this is America. This is the land of the free and the home of the brave. And at your earliest age, you're taught that your freedom is worth fighting for. One of the words that is not in your vocabulary as an American is surrender. And he said, I began to see how it has bled over into your understanding of lordship. And he explained how when we come to Jesus, we come and out of the goodness of our hearts, we are offering to him our full devotion and our total commitment. And he says, that sounds very spiritual you know but he says when you come and you offer your total commitment do you see who's still calling the shots you're still in charge and we can offer our total commitment to jesus and self still remain intact because commitment is something I determine that I'm going to do for you. And so ultimately, we're still in charge. We still have decisions to make. But surrender, on the other hand, recognizes I am nothing. I am no longer a thing. I have no decision to make because I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. I don't have a life anymore. My life is hid with Christ in God and with surrender we come and report for duty what wilt thou have me to do and that my friend is what God is looking for from us So what is God's biblical intention here? It is because the Lord Jesus Christ fully sacrificed his life for us. The real goal or essence of the Christian life 
is to be fully, say it, surrendered followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. The biblical response to Christ's full sacrifice isn't full commitment, but full surrender. And you know what the difference is between commitment and surrender? About 20 to 40 years. And then lastly, don't get too excited. I might need to say one or two things about it. Number four, our natural inclination. To live the life God has called us to live, we must have faith to believe that we can live the Christian life. Now, obviously, the Bible is big on faith. Obviously, this is a group of people that is big on faith. We, we threw it into the name of our fellowship, man. We, we call ourselves the Living Faith Fellowship. Uh, I love hearing Pastor Sam preach. Pastor Sam, it's hard to listen to him preach and him not talk about us being full of faith and well we should be. But when it comes to faith, do you understand? The key isn't our faith. The real key is the object of our faith. See, I, 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 can, I can have little faith on thick ice and it's going to hold me. I can have great faith on thin ice and it ain't going to hold me. But the real key isn't my faith, it's the object of my faith, right? And, and when it comes to the faith that we need to live this Christian life thing, the key also is the object of our faith. And, and so the question is, is the object of our faith me or God? Maybe I can ask it another way. Does God want me to have faith in my ability? Or does God want me to have faith in his ability? Because just like the thin ice, I can have great faith in my ability and I'll never live the, the life that God wants me to live. But I can have little faith in God's ability and I can live the way that God intends because it's no longer I, but Christ, which is really the point of God's biblical intention to live the life God has called us to live. We must have the faith to believe that Christ will live it through us. You remember... Uh, God tells Moses uh, to, to get the 12 guys from each of the 12, 12 tribes to go spy out the land, okay? 
And God didn't send out the spies so that they'd all come back after assessing the situation and believe that they could, they could do it, man. They could wipe out the people and they could go in there and they could ha- inhabit the land. Do you know what he wanted? He wanted them to go into that land and come back and believe that they couldn't do it, but that God not only could do it, but that he would do it. Okay, and let me tell you why I bring that up. Okay, let's think together about what it takes in order for us to be saved. Okay, we are a group of people that believe that you must be brought by the power of the Word of God. You've got to be brought to a place of understanding your utter helplessness and hopelessness to save yourself. And the reason that we believe that you've got to get to that place is because that's the only way that we'll ever come to the place to where we'll call upon the name of the Lord so that we can be saved, right? Because it's not our works that save us. And listen, the fact is, as long as there is something that we think that we can do or that some man or some church or some religion can do for us, listen, as long as we think that we'll never be saved because we will never cry out to the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that's the point of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that, watch watch this next words here, not of yourselves. Isaiah 64 and verse 6, we hit on this last night. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, You remember, not all the wrong things that we do for ourselves, but all of the right things we do for God. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But, listen, as long as we're still thinking there's something we can do for God, it reveals to us that we really don't understand the issue of sin in our humanness, which shows us our need for Christ. And what is so crazy about this whole thing? I mean, again, listen, y'all, we, we wax so eloquent in talking to lost people about this subject, and we'll tell them, Listen, it's not, it's not about your works. It's not about your righteousness. It's not about your strength. It's not about what you think you're doing for God. Listen, and we'll tell them, we are helpless. We are hopeless without what Christ has done for us. Isn't that what we tell them? And we are so doggone good about being able to explain that. But you know what's just crazy? 
is that somehow in our understanding, we, we don't get that we are just as helpless and just as hopeless in our own strength and in our own righteousness to live the Christian life. And you know what we do? The same exact thing that lost people do that keeps them from getting saved rather than trusting God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, we trust the arm of the flesh. We do the very thing that the Galatians were doing that made Paul say in Galatians 3 and verses 1 through 3, it's in your notes, Oh, foolish Galatians, here, oh, foolish Laodiceans, who have, listen to this word, bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Do you know what Paul is saying here? He's saying, listen, y'all, let me ask you something. How did you get saved? by what you did for God by your works in the flesh or by what God did for you by his works through the Spirit. And his point is, okay, if that's how you received salvation through God's work on your behalf, what he's trying to say is why in the world would you think that you could be brought to perfection or sanctification any other way than that. And listen, I believe that what we're talking about here is one of the most difficult things to learn in the Christian life. Okay? Now, now listen, I'm, I'm going to be giving one more biblical illustration and we'll put a bow on this, but I want to make sure that you're, you're listening to this. this. This whole thing that we're talking about here is beautifully illustrated in the nation of Israel. I talk about them all the time because they are such an incredible picture of us and our salvation and God's intention and what he wants to do to give us an, an abundant life but again, you remember they were in bondage in Egypt. It was, it's a picture of our lost condition, and they were brought out. But he says that many of them, okay, 603,550 of them, age 20 and above, came out. 603,548 of them, all but Joshua and Caleb, died and were overthrown in the wilderness, and this whole passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 and verse 11 says, listen, don't let what happened to them happen to you. 
And it might be one of those things where God is just kind of trying to telegraph to us that maybe we ought to go back into the Old Testament and figure out what happened to them and why it was that they were overthrown in the wilderness and why if they were taking an 11-day journey. Why did it take 40 years? Okay. Do you understand there was some, some reason that they weren't getting into the land? And, and again, you are understanding this is a picture of the Christian life. We're brought out, salvation, but God's intention is to bring us to a whole different type of existence where we're bearing fruit and we're living in abundance of fruit. Love joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, that kind of fruit. So what is it that we can learn from the nation of Israel and their exodus and their failure to get into the land? And What can we learn about how they actually got in? Well, it's laid out for us in Joshua chapter 4, verses 19 through 24. Unbelievably powerful passage for those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ in this room, y'all. He's recounting the history. And the people came up out of Jordan, okay, once they crossed the Jordan. You know what's on the other side? Canaan, okay. And the people, yep, the promised land, you were right. And the people came up out of Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over. What's that next word? As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. Okay, now listen, y'all. The key is verse 23. Would you go back and look at it? This is how, after 40 years, they finally entered into Canaan. For... The Lord your God did for you what you could not do for yourselves. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over as... Just like he did to the Red Sea, which 
He dried up from before us until we were gone over. Okay. Listen, do you understand what Joshua is explaining to the children of Israel here? He's letting them know how it was that they got into Canaan. And you know, if we were going to paraphrase what, he, what he's trying to say to them, you know how we might express that? And what we learned. I'm sure you hit this pose. And what we learned is the way out. Is the way in. Check it out. Listen. Don't 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 back up. They had to trust the Lord to do the same thing for them in bringing them out of Egypt to bring them in to Canaan. And listen, y'all. For forty years. It was that simple. Okay. You know what's crazy? The New Testament teaches us the very same thing. Listen. The way that we live the Christian life The way that we tap into this abundant life that Jesus talked about in John chapter 10 and verse 10. You know how we do it? We do it. Don't make it hard. We do it the same way we got saved. The way out is the way in. I don't know what you mean. Okay. Well, let me, let me throw a verse on it, and we'll quit. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. What's the first word, y'all? Okay, now, this is a group of people. We would understand that two of the most important words in the Bible are like and as. And so the reason that we say that those are the two of the most important words in the Bible, is because uh, God is the author of the Bible, and he is a master illustrator. You're never going to come up with a better illustration than biblical ones. And, and so what God does is he, he takes things that he knows it's hard for us to get our heads wrapped around. Oh, you guys are talking about the crucified life, and it's not about what we do, but it's about him living through us, and I don't know what in the heck you're talking about. Okay, I get it. So God illustrates it for us. And, and he, what he does is he takes something that he knows it's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around, and he likens it to something that he thinks we know. And then he says, okay, so you get this? Okay, well, this is like that. This is as that. Okay, so he's going to start in this verse with something that he thinks that we know. And he says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. Okay, put the brakes on. Don't, don't, don't even read another word. Ah! 
we got to stop and go, how did we receive Christ Jesus the Lord? As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. Okay, I wasn't there when you got saved. But I know enough about salvation from what the Word of God says that you, just like we talked about a minute ago, you were brought to a place to where you said, Oh God, I finally get it. There's nothing that I can do. And so, Lord, I'm not going to do anything except for trust what you did on my behalf. And so, Lord, would you save me? Okay, I, again, I, I don't know what words you used, but let me just ask you, is that how you therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord? Okay. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so, so walk ye in him. The way that we walk in the Christian life is the same exact way that we got saved. So it might sound like this. Lord, your mercies are new every morning and I thank you that I'm alive, and Lord, I finally get it. There's nothing that I can do today to live for you. And so, Lord, I come, and I yield my members to you. I present my body a living sacrifice and confess, I am no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. And so, Lord, when it comes to living this Christian life, I got nothing. And so, Lord, will you live your life through me? That's it. Wait, can you make it harder than that? <laughs> you know, I, 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 I was waiting for, for Saturday morning to be able to get the resolve on this thing, and that's way too easy. <laughs> Paul said, but, but I fear that in the same way that the serpent beguiled Eve, that you will be moved away from the simplicity that is in Christ. Wake up tomorrow, y'all, and just do exactly what you did when you got saved. Don't try to put your good works in there. That ain't how you got saved, man. And, and, and we come, and we yield ourselves to the Lord. And... and I have more to say on this subject, and so does Pastor George. And, uh, and so from here, though, let's start trying to get the victory of the crucified life 
but I fear that we're going to try to make it hard. Let's keep it simple, saints. <laughs> All right, worship team, why don't you come on up and I'll pray. Lord, I, I pray that you'll give us ears to hear again tonight the simplicity that is found in Christ. And Lord, will you please get us off of this treadmill of striving, disciplining, working, laboring. Oh, Lord, teach us the simplicity of yielding to you, presenting ourselves to you, abiding in you, letting the peace of God rule in our hearts, letting the word of God have its rightful place in our lives. And Lord, if there's any laboring, may we labor to enter into the rest of the people of God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.